0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I noticed a couple of weeks ago, I was reading in the news that a boy from Texas won the National Spelling Bee. Did you see that? You know what the word was that he won with? Koinonia. That's great. I saw that and thought, wow, I thought that was just a Greek word. I didn't realize that was a, a word that people actually knew. The word Bible is from the Greek word, biblios, and it means book. Um, but it's actually a collection of books. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. It's, it's really a library of books. And the Bible that we use here every week, the Bible that you have in your lap, has 66 books in it, um, 39 in the Old Testament. 27 in the New. It says, you open up on the flyleaf and it says Bible. But this book also says Bible on the front of it and on the side of it. And it's got our 66 books in it and a few extra. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you've got this little section right here that is very clearly uh according to this volume, Bible. And that little center section was written between the Testaments, um, before even Jesus was born. A couple hundred years after Jesus was born, a group called the Gnostics opened up um, the possibility, they suggested, that there are other books of Scripture that haven't uh, haven't been included in our Bibles. About 600 years after Christ, the Muslims said that the Quran represented the final addition to God's holy writings. Until about the 1800s, when Joseph Smith, up in up in the north, uh, penned what he called the Book of Mormon, which claims to be quote another testament of Jesus Christ. And then Hollywood movies and bestseller novels like The Da Vinci Code present. What seemed to be a compelling case that somehow we've got it wrong, that history is somehow wrong with, uh, with our Bibles, and that there's a council of bishops in the year 325 that just sat around and voted and chose what books go into the New Testament out of hundreds of worthy alternatives. You know, we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, but the question is, what's scripture? The 66 books that we have, or the 66 plus that center section, or the 66 plus the center section plus the the uh, Gnostic books, plus the Book of Mormon, I mean, after a while, the, the water can get so muddy that you feel like a catfish swimming around trying to find the Bible. It's hard to see. And honestly, it's sort of like Satan in the Garden of Eden. Questioning the Word of God to where the truth is sort of muddied and you don't see it. And therefore, you're not really confident in what the Bible is. How can we really know that our 66 books bound together represent the complete Word of God and no more? Well, that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. Um, In fact, our whole time today. I looked at the Gospel of Mark, and the next chapter, or the next section that we're going to look at is actually the whole chapter 13, which is the Olivet Discourse. And I thought, you know what? I need a little more time on that. And uh, actually, Kathy and I are going to be gone next week. We're going to the Grand Canyon. We've never been to the Grand Canyon. So we're going to the Grand Canyon. We're going to get in a raft with a group of other Christians and go down the Snake River for like, what? Have you done this? Is this like. A good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> anyway, don't tell us. We're, but we're looking forward to that. Anyway, so we'll, we'll get back into Mark next time in a couple of weeks. But today we're going to talk about this question Is the Bible a loose canon? And by canon there, we're spelling it with one N in the middle. Canon, not canon like explosion, but canon. Uh, the, the Greek word for canon, or actually the Hebrew word for canon, means a reed. R e e d, or you know, like a physical reed, and it came to be known that a reed of a particular length represented a particular standard, kind of like our ruler. A uh, a measuring reed or a measuring rod came to be known as a standard. So when we talk about the canon today, we're talking about the books that are in our Bibles recognized as scripture. If a book is canonical then we're saying it's scriptural. So let's start with the Old Testament. And as Dr. Toussaint used to say, don't get lost in the Hinkley, Minnesota underbrush. Today you're going to have to wear your thinking cap. I'll do my best to keep it interesting. But there's nothing wrong with bringing history into the scriptures because we've got nothing to be afraid of when we talk about history and the scriptures. They go together very well. So, talking about the Old Testament, this, I actually had to go to the library and get this book. This is a book that includes that center section I mentioned, which is called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a word, Apocrypha, means hidden things. And this center section includes an additional 14 books that aren't in the Bible, probably, that you have in your lap. And how did this get here? This was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in that 400, we call it silent years, but some believe that it wasn't so silent. The Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s basically said that the Old Testament canon was sort of up for grabs all the way up through the time of between the Testaments and even in the time of the New Testament up to A.D. 90. They said that a council got together at a place in Israel called Jamnia, and it was then that the Old Testament canon was finally, you know, canonized, finally complete. And, and they decided that uh, only the 39 books that we hold were, um, were true scripture. And the Catholics, on the other hand, said, no, there were actually more. But the point is that they said that it was up for grabs all the way up into 1890, but the truth is, it really wasn't. And it's good, more and more that view is becoming less and less believed. But here's why we know that that's true. And I'll tell you why that's good news after I mention it. you probably heard of the Maccabees. I've never seen a movie on the Maccabees, but boy, that would be a great movie. I mean, it'd be full of action. The Maccabees were a a religious, basically Jewish zealots who were passionate about uh, God being the, the Lord and the sovereign of Israel. And of course, from the time of the exile, even up to today, Israel has been in what's called the times of the Gentiles, meaning Gentile domination. Even today, Israel is very dependent on Gentiles, m- mainly us. and uh, But throughout history, that has been very much the case as well. And the Maccabees didn't like that. They wanted to have a sovereign control, once again, of Judea. And so Judas Maccabeus, which is why it's called the Maccabees, rebelled, as well as those who followed him, against the godless ruler uh, called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus made some Jews eat pig meat, which, of course, was absolutely uh, terrible to them, and it basically incited the Maccabean revolt. And but also during that time, the Maccabees did something that was very helpful. They gathered what they understood at that time as the Old Testament. In 164, they did this. In fact, I want to read from uh, the book of Second Maccabees. You're welcome to turn there if you like. Just kidding. But Second Maccabees, uh, chapter two, verse 13 and 14, says this. Uh, the same things also were reported in the writings of the commentaries of Nemias, and how he founded a library, gathered together the acts of the kings and the prophets and of David and the epistles of the kings concerning the holy gifts. In like manner also Judas, Maccabeus meaning, gathered together all those things that were lost by reason of the war we had and they remain with us. So even the book of Maccabees says that Judas Maccabees, Maccabeus, gathered together what they understood as the list. And the list of those books always represented either twenty two or twenty-four books, depending on how you, you organize them, meaning, you know, like first and second Samuel is that two books or one book? And they would often put it together. But mostly they preferred that it was 22 because that's how many letters were in the Hebrew alphabet, so they wanted to make it 22 books. But we got 39 books in our Old Testament. That's because we divide, like Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and they had all the minor prophets as one, one book. We have them all as uh, different books, 12 different books. So, But it's the exact same content. That's the point. The point is if, if the, the number was accepted and known... Then the number represented particular books, all the way back to 164 B.C., before Christ. So the Old Testament, at least for, even just from a historical perspective, uh, was pretty much closed. It was closed by even before the time of Christ. The confusing part is these books represent good history. And you read like the book of Maccabees, we, we understand Hanukkah from... From Maccabees. We understand a lot of intertestamental history because of these books. And if we didn't have them, we wouldn't understand the history of it. And because they're true in what they say, it's been misunderstood often that it represents Scripture just because it's true. But here's the thing just because a book is true doesn't mean that it's the Bible. Think about that. Now, the other side is true. That is, if it's Scripture, we know it's true. But just because a book is true, doesn't mean it's Scripture. There are books that Chuck has written that are true. That doesn't mean that they're the Bible. It's the same with uh, even in the New Testament. The book of Jude quotes 1 Enoch, which is not Scripture. But what Jude is quoting from 1 Enoch is true. That that doesn't mean that 1 Enoch is Scripture. In the book of Acts, Paul quotes a pagan poet in in uh, in Athens on Mars Hill, but that doesn't mean that the pagan poet is scripture. It just means that his whatever point he's making is true. Um, when you have in your Bible, you may have some introductory material. Like if you turn to a particular book, like Isaiah, you might have an introduction. You may even have at the at the bottom notes by Ryrie or by Chuck or by somebody else. Everybody knows that those aren't Scripture. That's just what kind of goes along with the Scripture to give it a a historical context or to give you some insight. So that's really what the Apocrypha was. Um, Now, turn to the New Testament, the one you have in your lap, to Luke chapter 11. And I want to show you something that really helps us with regard to the Old Testament. The words of Jesus give us great insight into what the, the actual Old Testament is. Luke chapter 11. And honestly we're at a great advantage with the Old Testament because as Christians we can see what Christ and the other New Testament authors thought about the Bible. When Paul said all Scripture is inspired, the all Scripture he was referring to was the Old Testament because at that time that's what was written. Um, but look at what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 49. Luke eleven forty-nine. I know, Luke has long chapters. Luke 11, starting at verse 49. Jesus says this, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation." I don't know, maybe you've read those verses many times without realizing that Jesus outlines the Old Testament in these words. Notice, first of all, he says in verse 50, all the prophets charged against this generation. And then in the very next verse, he says, from Abel to Zechariah will be charged against this generation. So he's saying all the prophets represent those between Abel and Zechariah. And thankfully, he tells us which Zechariah, the one killed between the altar and the house of God, because there's more than one. Zechariah is not the Old Testament book of Zechariah but the priest who was killed at the altar. So, Abel, that's here's an easy question. What book was Abel in? Genesis, okay? But here's here's a harder one. Zechariah. What what book was that? That's 2nd Chronicles. And if you look historically at what books were written in what order, 2nd Chronicles was the last Old Testament book written. So, what Jesus is saying is from the first book, Genesis, to the last book written, Second Chronicles, all the prophets represent all the prophets. That represents the twenty-two books from a Hebrew perspective or the thirty-nine books that you have in your lap. So thank Jesus literally that we know exactly what they understood as the Old Testament canon, from Genesis to Second Chronicles, and the prophets, of course, which are after that in our Bibles, fit in the timeline during all the historical books, so it all fits together. And that's great. Uh, it's helpful to us to be able to know this. If you're um, taking notes, you might want to jot down Luke eleven forty nine through 51, because that is sort of the, the go-to verse where Jesus outlines the Old Testament. And it's also significant that at this time, the Apocrypha was already written. When Jesus made this statement, the Apocrypha was already written, but he didn't include it. He didn't include it. What about the New Testament? Here it's a little harder, because we don't have Jesus around telling us, you know, from Matthew to Revelation, this represents the New Testament. Uh, Jesus had already ascended and was in glory by the time all the New Testament was written. So how do we know? about the New Testament. Well, turn to two different passages, if you would. I'll ask you to keep them kind of both open in your lap. 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Peter 3. 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Peter 3. 1 Timothy 5, 2 Peter 3. The first generation of Christians didn't have a complete New Testament because the apostles and their associates were still being inspired to write the New Testament. But as soon as a book of Scripture was written, the church immediately began to compile the letters, to copy the letters, to transmit the letters throughout the church so that people would understand what the New Testament was, what Scripture was. 1 Timothy 5, look at Verse eighteen. 1 Timothy five eighteen. Paul writes, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now he's quoting two scriptures here, and hopefully they're notated as two different in your in your Bible. The first is clearly a quotation from the Old Testament. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing from Deuteronomy. But the second, the laborer, the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's not quoted from the Old Testament. That's Luke. Paul is quoting Luke here. And so Paul is saying that the writings of Luke are scripture. He calls them scripture. The scripture says... Now look at 2nd Peter chapter 3. 2nd Peter 3 verse 15. Peter says, "Regarding the patience of our Lord, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just also, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you" As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. Which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Peter calls Paul's writings scriptures, as refers to the rest of the scriptures. So the point here simply is that Paul's letters... Luke's writings, um, as soon as it was written, there was an understanding that they were Scripture. These were people who were contemporaries, obviously, of Peter and Paul. They didn't wait for centuries for them to die to be recognized to be Scripture. The early church knew the apostles. The early church knew the authors of the New Testament books. And so it was very easy to, uh, to identify. And as a result, it wasn't until about A.D., well, it wasn't about, it was 397, that there was the Council of Carthage that all 27 books were recognized to be Scripture or recognized to be in the canon. Now, notice the word that I used there, recognized, not voted, not chosen, but recognized, that they allowed time to do what time does and to sift the wheat from the chaff, and the books that were indeed Scripture stood taller than all the others. Plus, they had the, uh, the authority of the apostles as the authors, or those that were connected with the apostles. Nobody determined what was Scripture and what wasn't. That's the important thing. It was recognized what was and what wasn't. How did they recognize them? Well, they had several criteria. They had several criteria. I'll give them to you. Here's the first. These books had apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. All the authors were either apostles or they were associated with the apostles. For example, uh, Luke was associated with Paul. Mark, as we've been going through the book, was associated with who? Peter. Peter. Hebrews, some connected with Paul... James and Jude were half brothers of the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty good connection. You're still in 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Back a couple of chapters. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says this We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying, look, we didn't just make it this stuff up. We, we didn't just write about Jesus and sort of shape the Christianity of the early church to, to make it look like the Christianity we wanted it to be. We were eyewitnesses of these things. And we wrote down to you not cleverly devised tales, but we wrote down for you what we saw speaking of cleverly devised tales i want to read to you an excerpt from one of the so-called gospels called the infancy gospel of thomas you want a good laugh read this sometime it is um, it's really short and its purpose was sort of filling the gaps you know when we look at jesus life we've got his ministry and then we, we got his birth we got that one little incident that happened when he was 12 And then we've got his whole, you know, ministry. Actually, really, only 52 days of his ministry is recorded in the Gospels. But what about all those years growing up? I mean, wouldn't you like to see a a godly toddler or a godly teenager? What does that look like? That would have been great to see. Well, the Gospel of Thomas is the book for you. Listen to this. I just pick this this one. This is like my favorite passage from it. Jesus, Jesus is a little boy. And uh, this is sort of written in King James's. It makes it sound better, so I'll, I'll do my best to read it. But it says After that, again, he went through the village, and a child ran and dashed against his shoulder. And Jesus was provoked and said unto him, Thou shalt not finish thy course, meaning, Thou shalt not go all the way. And immediately he fell down and died. But certain people, when they saw what was done, said, Whence was this young child born? From that every word of his an accomplished work. I don't know what that means. And the parents of him that, were, and the parents of him that was dead came to Joseph and blamed him, saying, Thou hast such a child that canst, canst not dwell with us in the village, or do thou teach him to bless and not curse, for he slayeth our children. In other words, these parents that Jesus killed their son, Come up and say, Joseph, can't you control your son? He's killing our kids. This is the boy Jesus, according to the Gospel of Thomas. How would you like Jesus to play with your children or grandchildren? (laughs) Our daughters wouldn't have lasted 10 minutes. (laughs) There's another passage in uh, the Gospel of Thomas. I won't, won't read it to you, but I like it because I'm a woodworker, and I don't always make good cuts. Sometimes I have a pretty big scrap pile. Well, apparently Joseph did too. The Gospel of Thomas says that one time Joseph cut a board too short, Jesus just reached out and stretched it for him. I would love to have Jesus in the shop. Well, the first criteria is apostolic origin. The second I've clearly mocked, and that is uh, doctrinal soundness. Some of these books are clearly not scripture, like the Gospel of Thomas we just read. It so contradicts all the rest of the character of Christ that it clearly is a fabrication. These so called Gospels and other literature are from the lost books of the Bible, as they claim. And they try to explain what the Bible doesn't tell us, and yet we're very curious to know. So, doctrinal soundness. It contradicts Scripture, and uh, almost no one else considered these books to be Scripture, which brings us to the third criteria, and that's universal acceptance. There's got to be a consensus, and there was, that represented a recognition that the, of the transforming effects that these books had on the lives of people. They changed lives. It was universal. It was unanimous. Nobody accepts the Book of Mormon but Mormons, it's not universal. It's not another testament of Jesus Christ. You know what the word testament means? It means covenant. You've got the old covenant. You've got the new covenant. You don't have another one. It's not another covenant of Jesus Christ. And we've got the final one, the New Testament. We see the end of the story, Revelation 22. We don't need another covenant. Now, it's true the Antichrist will make another covenant with Israel, but that's not what we're after. So finally, how do we know the canon is closed? I've given you in your handout there uh, one, two, three, four, five, and let me just run through this real quick. These are five reasons that you can be confident that the Bible you have in your lap is the Bible, that there's nothing that you need to wait for and add on to as Revelation chapter 23. The first reason is this, the early church understood it to be closed. The early church understood it to be closed. We just basically ran through this, but they recognized that the canon, the Holy Spirit had determined only these 27 books that we have and that were recognized because of these three criteria, apostolic origin, doctrinal soundness, and universal acceptance. The second reason is the New Testament says that the canon will be closed. Um, you're still in Second Peter. Look now at verse, verses 2 and following. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and following. Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, key word, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter says in the promises of God, in the word of God, his divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything is there. Turn a couple of pages over to your right to the book of Jude. Actually, I should say a few books over. Skip over John, John's epistles and look at the book of Jude, short book. Look at verse 3. Jude 3. He writes, "'Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints.'" Jude says, the faith was delivered once for all to Christians. He doesn't merely say, I wanted to write to you about faith, meaning like salvation, but the faith, the faith, representing doctrine or a body of knowledge that he says, and using his words, it was delivered once for all. Even the New Testament itself says that eventually the canon will be closed. And Jude writes, he says, because he wants us to contend for the faith. Why? Because some deny Christ. The New Testament says the canon will be closed. Third reason, the New Testament tells the end of the story. We don't need more revelation. you might just want to jot this down, but John chapter 16, verse 12 and 13, John 16, 12 and 13, Jesus says this, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Christ told his apostles that night in the upper room that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he would guide them to record all the truth in the scripture. And particularly, he says, he'll disclose disclose what's to come. We don't need more revelation. We don't need Revelation 23 because Revelation 22 tells us the end of the story. It tells us the very end of the story. Plus, at the death of the apostles, there's nobody left to verify what's true and what's not. So the canon had to have been closed by the time the final apostle died. We know that was John, and writing the book of Revelation uh, would complete the canon. Fourth reason, the new books are only proposed by heretics. New books are only proposed by by heretics. A couple of verses to jot down for this. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2 says this. Now we request you, brethren, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul says don't be Don't be duped. Just because it says Paul on the letter doesn't mean I wrote it. Just because it says Thomas on the Gospel of Thomas doesn't mean Thomas wrote it. Just because it says Jesus Christ on the sign in front of a church doesn't mean it has anything to do with Jesus Christ. Galatians 1 verse 8 is another verse you'll want to jot down. Galatians 1 8 says this, But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. That's that's a very tame way of saying, let him be damned. Very strong words by the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting that the Book of Mormon was purported to have come from an angel. (laughs) And Paul says this very thing. Even we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached. Let him be accursed. There's been no real attempt by the universal church to add to the canon. There hasn't been. The only people who have tried to add to the canon are those that the books contradict their heretics. Um... It's basically an attempt to give us information that we don't have, but that we're very curious about. And the final reason, the fifth reason, is that God guards His Word. God guards His Word. Uh, A few verses to jot down for this. Revelation 22, verses 18 through 21. Revelation 22, verses 18 18 through 21. Say this, and this is like the, the end of our Bibles. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part of the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that's the end. That's the end. And we're told by the Lord, don't add anything to this. That's the end. God guards his word. Um, Also, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 say this, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you be proved a liar. And finally, Jesus' words in Luke 21, verse 33. Luke twenty-one, thirty-three. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We have to assume, as the Bible tells us, that the Holy Spirit, who took a very active role in causing the writing of the Bible, would also work very hard to make sure that it's preserved. The Bible is eternal because it has eternal value. Heaven and earth will pass away, wow, but my words will never pass away. God guards his word. Um, The Bibles that we have, 66 books, were written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents, in three different languages, and yet it has one theme. What are the odds of that kind of diversity, of of that kind of unity amidst all that diversity? Sixty-six books, forty authors, three continents, three languages, one theme. One theme. And that theme is simply this, the glory of God through the redemption of mankind by means of the salvation offered through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. That's the theme of the Bible, and all the books of the Bible point to that one theme. But we come to the end of our lesson, again, as Dr. Toussaint used to say, what's the question we ask? So what? I always wanted to jump up and shout, what's for lunch? (laughs) Because that's what I was thinking about, about the time he always asked that. (laughs) Not what's for lunch. but So what? I mean, this is great. So 66 books, everything points to the fact that the Bibles we have in our lap are indeed the Word of God. So what? Well, the application is very simple. Make it a priority to read and apply what God has made a priority to write and preserve. Make it a priority to read and apply what God has made a priority to write and preserve. People have died throughout the centuries defending and guarding the books that we have. You know, the average household owns nine, I believe, nine or ten Bibles. We have a lot more than that in our house. It is so accessible to us. We, we live in a time where If you don't like this particular version, you know what? You can read another version. Or if you're tired of reading the same version for the last 10 years, you know what? Move to another version. Um, The tools that we have make it so accessible, and it's right here, right here, for us to read and apply. I hope that you're doing that. And I say that in no way to make you feel guilty You need more guilt like you need a hole in the head. (laughs) I say that to say you have, we have, I have a meal every day that is a wonderful meal. Some days it feels a little lean. Some days I can't shovel it in fast enough. But it's wonderful truth that is necessary for your spiritual health. Read your Bible. Read it. Just read it. And ask the Lord, what can, what's one thing I can apply today from what I've read? Make it a priority to read and apply what God has made a priority to preserve. Let's pray. Father, to thank you once again for the Bible is such an understatement. To so thank you that you have not left us in the dark, groping, Wondering what is true, and and simply having opinion versus opinion, as opposed to having an objective standard, a canon, a read, a rule of measure, the objective truth of Scripture that we can open and look at, read in our own language, and clearly understand how it points to areas of our lives that we need to bring back in line to you, that it encourages us with those areas of our lives that you've changed and that you are changing, that it it opens our hearts to the truth that our sin would condemn us if Jesus Christ had not died on the cross for our sins. And by simple faith in him, by simply believing in him, all of our sins can be forgiven. And Father, we pray for any who might be here today that have access to the truth of your word and yet never have understood the simple truth that they need their sins forgiven to have eternity with you. That you'd remove those scales from their eyes in this moment and that you would show them the beauty of the grace of God and let them receive the forgiveness that is theirs to have. And for those of us, Father, who have made that choice, may we not take for granted the great feast that we have at our disposal every day through the scriptures. These 66 books that you have, that you have sought uh, appropriate to preserve for us, to translate into our language, may we also make it a very important part of our day to listen to your word and to apply it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.